Hey everybody, welcome to 12 Questions Podcast. My name is Dave Yates. We are rolling solo today because Miss Anna Valenzuela is out on the road with Brandy Posey. So she is doing the comedy dream, road dogging it like only she knows how. And uh, the, the show must go on. So we're going to see if I can hold down the fort on my own. Uh, so before I get started, usually she asks me to do this. But I'm going to ask myself, can you read that beautiful clarity statement? I sure can. Welcome to 12 Questions. We believe that growth and recovery isn't just for clean and sober people. Our mission is to share experiences with guests who do the same. We're not affiliated with AA, NA, or any other 12-step organization. 12 Question has absolutely no opinion on the use of drugs or alcohol by anyone. We're simply two people that happen to be in recovery that want to give hope to anyone struggling. Although some of our guests may be clean and sober, some of them are not or choose not to divulge. The purpose of the podcast is to learn more about ourselves and others and we only hope that you can learn something about yourselves by listening and that is a clarity statement and uh, we have a wonderful guest today and our guests introduce themselves so who are we speaking with today uh, my name is kelly hogaboom kelly kelly comes highly recommended uh, by a past guest whitney wasson whitney wasson everybody so go check out sober rabbit and all the things whitney's doing uh, and whitney's really plugged in so hi, how you doing kelly like what what's what's the haps i'm i'm good i'm here in aberdeen washington and it's a super gray day out for a change just kidding it's always gray so um <laughs> i've been excited i've been looking forward to this podcast i think it's a wonderful premise and totally honored and um delighted to be invited aboard thanks yeah I, we just honestly the whole goal was to just give people a window into recovery without them having to feel obligated uh to commit to any one faction of recovery nice. um i mean me personally, I've done 12-step recovery my almost 10 years, but I know that's just, it's also not the only way. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think a part of what helps me be of service to people is just to let people know that like, whatever you're doing to try to get right in whatever way possible, just, just get that news. You know, um, whether it's 12-step, whether it's religion, whether it's uh, yoga, meditation, crystals, all uh, it's more fun. Mm -hmm. It's more fun to keep exploring. And that's kind of how I've been feeling uh, about doing the podcast. So, um, awesome. yeah, we're, we're going to hop right into this. Uh, so question one, Kelly, is what does surrender look like to you? Wow. So, I mean, when I think of surrender, I always think of kind of the big scenes in movies with addicts or alcoholics. You know, I am an alcoholic. I'm coming up on 11 years clean and sober. And um, I've even before I got sober, I was always drawn to those scenes in movies where someone has like what we call the bottom or whatever. Um, to me, I guess it, it's the point where I'm kind of out of ideas and I'm in a, I'm stuck or I'm scared and my mind doesn't immediately start plotting. My mind just is open. And obviously we have those big moments in recovery. I, I mean, most of us who end up, those of us who are clean and sober probably could name a few of those big moments, sure. but there's also the daily experience of surrender. So, um, I guess for me, I just think of it as not being too sure that I know how to go forward and being willing to stay a little open-minded. Yeah, I think uh, when, I, when I first got sober, it was impressed upon me to remain teachable, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I mean, there's been, uh, you know, I'll be 10 in April if I make it, right on. whatever. <laughs> right. 
Um, but yeah, like I, there's been moments in my recovery where it's like it's harder to surrender because your life gets bigger. You think you know uh, shit, that's uh, right. and you get comfortable. Uh, and then life has a way of um, knocking you, knocking you back a peg or two, and then you kind of refocus uh, your efforts. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I remember like up till year four, I was chugging along, got sober in central Illinois, and I was pretty good with the surrender thing. And then I made the decision to move to Los Angeles. Uh, and I landed in Los Angeles and I hated all the meetings. I hated the clapping and, and the hoopla and the whole the showmanship, I guess, for lack of better terms. So like my my fir- my <laughs> fourth step with the current sponsor I have all had Southern California 12-step people on it. You know, so it's like, I, it's not drugs or alcohol anymore for me. It's sometimes I have to surrender that, like, like not being a psychopath is a full-time job for me. You know? Yeah, that's funny you'd say year four. I think that was about year four for me where, um, like you say, life's pretty good. You know, we'd, we did our steps where I'm still in the program doing really well. My life's getting better. My marriage is getting better. And something happened to one of our children that was, that just was out of nowhere. It was awful. It, and I remember knowing I wasn't going to drink or use. And I remember knowing I wasn't going to misbehave. I was going to do the right thing and go to the authority, all those things. But I was like plunged into just darkness and that lasted almost a year. So that's a year of like staying clean and sober, staying connected, doing the things I'm supposed to, but real dark, real dark year. And uh, I can't even imagine if I was still drinking. I, I can't imagine what would have happened and how many things would have gotten worse. Uh, so um, that was my moment of realizing that sobriety wasn't going to mean I'm like untouchable in some way, right? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's easy to stay sober when things are good. But I quite honestly, <laughs> I for mean... some people, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's been easy for me to stay sober when things are crumbling. Yeah. Just because I don't know what else to do, right. you know? Right. And it's like, I mean, I stayed sober through the death of my father a couple years ago, you know? And you just have to surrender to the fact that it's like... What am I gonna do? Drink? Right. Really? Exactly. It's right. Really? Right. What am I gonna? What am I? Am I really gonna make this situation exponentially worse? Right. You know, I, it's it's funny. I'm just I'm thinking about this right now. It's just like on any given day, I don't like myself a whole bunch, but I definitely know that like if I put booze in me, like I'm gonna hurt a lot more people than just me. Right. Like, right. like I, it's hard when you first yeah. get sober because you're like, I was only hurting myself. And like, right. I mean, these people didn't want to be friends with me. Fuck them, whatever. But now it's like when the shit hits the fan, I don't put booze in me because I kind of like that no one hates me on the same level that I thought they did be- yeah. beforehand. Yeah, I've been sober long enough. A lot of people have, they can't, they can't imagine what I was like before. They don't know. They haven't met me. And I say, well, if you like me now, you might not have liked me then. And if you don't like me now, you really wouldn't have liked me back then. Exactly. Right? Uh, yeah. I'm not saying everybody loves me right now. Uh, and I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of it's none of my fucking business what other people think of me. Um, I, I really, it's my give a fuck tank couldn't be emptier in that regard. Uh, but yeah, like I... I remember when I first got sober, 
I heard this in, in a meeting, and, and, I, and I, I latched on to it. Someone said, you couldn't hate me more than I hated me. Right. People tried, and they failed. Right. You know? So. Yeah. Dark, dark times, yeah. But, um, but it's, it, as, it's important to reconnect with what it was really like. Because the longer we're sober, the more we can forget. Although it's, if you're staying connected to a group in recovery, you're probably not going to forget. It's the people that drift away that I worry about, right? Yeah, it's, uh, they, they call it uh, keep it in the middle of the boat. You know, so you don't, so you sure. don't fall over the edge. Um, <coughs> but me. yeah, I think I, the connected, connectedness, excuse me, um, of it all is was the appealing thing for twelve step work for me. It's like I would bounce around from mm. group to group and friends to friends, quote unquote friends, whoever drank like me at the given moment. And so when I found the rooms, it was oh, like these are my people. And I travel oh, yeah. the country for work, and I'm like, oh, these are my people, you know, and yeah. and um, for better or for worse, uh, with some of the, uh, you know, antique language and people and stuff like that, it's they're still my people. I've always found my way into a room that makes me feel like I can do it just one more day. Yeah, I've, I've always felt safe. You know, at this point, I've gone to thousands of meetings um, all over the place. Now, of course, in the last two years, a lot of online. And um, I've always felt safe. Even if one, if, if every now and then there's an individual in there that's not behaving in a safe way, there's always a bunch of under, other individuals who have their act together who will yeah. kind of surround. Like, it's, it's one of the safest places. Um, and yeah, of course, there are... Um, quibbles you know like I'm non-binary and I get misgendered in some of my meetings and that's kind of painful is it so painful I'm going to leave the fellowship no of course not you know so um it's not perfect and that's what my doctor told me on the first day I was sober he said nothing's perfect you came to me for help this is my suggestion and I remember that nothing's perfect right yeah and and for better or for worse I I do think that it, there is hope there, too, um, just given the nature of some of the 12-step literature has changed recently. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And um, I love being in a meeting, watching old fucks squirm when they have to fucking read where it's now. We are a group, uh, we're a group people, of people yes. instead of a group of men and women. And it's just like, I love it because it's like you want this to be available to as many people as possible, yeah. correct? Because if you know the history of any of the programs or what they're rooted in, that was the whole goal, is that we, we, are, we are people that usually would not mix, right. you know? And so to, to change <laughs> two words, you know, it, to, to make something a little bit more available to the next human being, you know, Fuck it. And, yeah. and I stick around sometimes, too. I stick around sometimes for the person who can't take it anymore, and they're not trying to hear this fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, I remember when I first got sober, my sponsor was like, we're going to learn everything that's in this book. For the very least, you're going to know when someone's fucking bullshitting you, and you're going to know what's the program. And you'll know the difference when you hear it. You'll know when it's just someone's opinion, and you'll know when it's actually the part that's going to save your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I love it. I love. I love talking shit to a crusty old fuck 
you know like oh it's sorry guys it's people yeah it's right it's people now it's you know it's funny because um right after i came out this year i was in a meeting and it was older all i was by far the youngest person there and i'm 44 i'm not i'm not young well yeah don't and, look at kelly yeah don't right. look at i look way right. worse <laughs> So, right. But I'm in this meeting, a small meeting, and as I did my share, I, I called myself a guy. I said, I'm the guy that this, I'm the guy that that. And uh, there was a 80, 80 year old man there, and he, as the phone list went around, he passed me the men's list. So I, I was pretty impressed by that. I was like, well, that was either an accident or he, he is with the times. He is kind of like paying attention and he's listening to my words and, and not. Um, so, you know, if anything, I've, I've found um, the, the group has taught me to be really open because you never know who's going to be a little more resilient. And uh, but yeah, like you've talked about the literature, the, the, all the literature. There's a lot of literature that demonstrates that this is a group that is trying to stay on top of the times even though of course the book is antiquated as fuck right yeah i mean <laughs> which it, we adore it but, right? but that's like you said you know if it's the difference between getting sober and going back to the way things were Oof. it's yeah you're gonna you're gonna take you're gonna take the hits and, and i'm not speaking on right. your behalf I, totally, I agree but it's like <clears throat> for me the religion aspect of it was a big beef for right. mine and i was like well do i want to die or do i want to just go all right fuck i don't believe what they believe but i could still hang here oh yeah i love the story of, of the old curvagini atheist who t it's in the 12 and 12 he takes down the book and he says is that so you know i'm i'm an atheist and i can be here if i want yeah. that story 1954 that means a lot to me so um yeah if you want to find a problem with the people in the rooms you can find a problem oh, yeah. and leave like you know what i mean yep. so yeah i'm with yep. you on that there there's there's every i could find a million reasons to get the fuck out of there and the right. one that keeps me staying is is this one is i don't drink or do drugs not necessarily because dave doesn't want to drink or do drugs i don't drink or do drugs because if someone calls me at two in the morning and they need my help uh, that's the deal i made with the universe that if absolutely. it gave me my life back i'd be there for the next person because I, like i said i don't like me on any given day but i do like the idea that I, I, I have a purpose to help someone. So that's what keeps me from picking up. No matter how insane it gets, it, it keeps me from picking up the drink. Not necessarily to preserve myself, but to preserve that, yeah. that I guess, a celestial handshake that I made with the universe. You know, the, yep. the old like, all right, universe, like, all right, higher dude, whatever the fuck I was calling yeah. it back in the day. I'm like, you help me. I'm promised I'm going to help the next person. And here I am sitting here talking to you with almost 10 years. You're coming up on 11, you said. And that's the deal. That's yeah. just doing the deal, no matter how insane it gets. And that's that's question number two is, uh, what is the most insane moment you've either had in or out of recovery, <sighs> Kelly? I... I guess there's two examples that came to mind. One is, so my partner and I, we've been together 24 years. We've been married 20 years. We have two children, 19 and 17. Um, so our, our relationship survived my drinking and then survived sobriety, <laughs> which is impressive, right? But there, we had a fight one night and I literally tore my hair out. Like I literally reached up and pulled my hair out, which I didn't think people really did. That was a pretty awful moment, which unfortunately, and by the way, this is what's weird. I wasn't drinking that night. I used to think that you had a problem with alcohol if you were constantly drinking, 
<laughs> but I had a problem until I got sober. It doesn't matter how long or short the durations were between my drinks, right? So in that moment of that fight, to, to not be under the influence, so to speak, and to be that out of my mind, you know, that there are people, if they heard this, when they hear the story, they're going to be really surprised to hear that story. But that's, that was a moment of, and obviously so many other nasty fights, you know, that's just the moment that comes to mind. But in another sense, the second example I was thinking of is I had a couple years where every morning I would get up and I, I would take my shower and have my coffee and I'd start to feel good. And I'd think, I don't need to drink today, <laughs> right? And every night by the end of the night, I was drinking. If not every night, we're talking 99 times out of 100. And that happened for two years straight. Two years that I was like, I'd wake up, I'd feel a little better. I'd think, I don't need to drink. And I drank that night. And that to me, you know, I don't know about the word insanity, but it's almost like an incomprehensible experience if you haven't lived through it. Um, and people that people might look at that and think you're you're a dumbass or but it's like my my take is that it's a brain disease of some sort because <laughs> I at noon I believed I wasn't going to drink. I believed it. Gospel truth. I wouldn't even buy alcohol at the store. But by that evening, if there was an alcohol in the cabinet, I sent my husband to get some. So that's pretty I don't know about insane, but it was a pretty, it's a crazy making experience to live that way. Well, yeah, it's, it's uh, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. That's insanity, you know? And it's, I, I mean, I can remember waking up, being pissed I was still alive, going, fuck, here we go again. I'm not going to do it. And then it's like, well, fucking I'm bored now or like my head hurts or like it's Tuesday. So I'm like, I guess I'm going to make my fucking walk to the liquor store. And that was the only exercise I would get. <laughs> and then I would still, you know, not bad. Yeah. And then I would, every day. That's great. Every day I would walk. And instead of like, instead of like getting like a handle of booze, I would get just enough to maybe make it through to, I was like, I'm only going to get this amount you know, and then sometimes I'd pass out after drinking it fast. And then I'd wake up at like, and like last, like the, the liquor store closed at like, like 1 a.m. And I'd wake up at like 1230 in a fucking panic and look and see that there was maybe like a quarter left yeah. in the bottle. And I'm like, we're, we're jogging, I guess now we're jogging the 20 minutes. <laughs> a great fitness program. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I weighed nothing. So if you're, if you're looking to drop yeah. some LBs, uh, drink straight vodka, chase it with steel reserve and live in central Illinois where the things aren't close together. <laughs> but that's so funny. You'd say that. Cause I once had a fellow in recovery. He teased me. He said, Kelly, why did you go get alcohol every day? He said, I had a, I had a garage full of Bud whatever. He drank some. Of course he did. I, of I course said, he did. Right. It's like, <laughs> I, was, I had a garage full of Budweiser. Okay. Yeah, sure. Right. Exactly. I was like, well, I, I guess you're just a smart little secret squirrel then, Buck. But it's like, the truth is, because I didn't, I didn't believe it was happening to me. Yep. And I, I, like some alcoholics get to where they understand what's happening. Yep. They know it. They have the, the stash but i i never i didn't quite get there i was just starting to um wake up at four in the morning wake up at five you know i'd pass out at midnight and i'd start to pop awake and i hadn't even figured out to start drinking again yet so i was right on that verge of day drinking right it never happened but it was going to this is a 
projection that there's nothing new and exciting about the projection. It goes a certain direction. I would have ended up with a garage full of whatever at some point had I lived. Right. And there was some part of it that was part of the process. Like it just like it, I was a creature of habit. So like, even though I knew I could probably circumnavigate the, the extra trip to the liquor store, I, I, I thought, I really thought that it was going to be enough. Every time I thought it was going to be enough for that day. And I wouldn't think too far beyond that. But every day I would go, I'd get the same amount. I would cha- I would literally drink vodka and chase it with steel reserve. like Because it's like, I don't want my chaser to not have alcohol in it. <laughs> That's the insanity <laughs> I was living in. And two, I drank the worst tasting shit because I fucking hated myself. Like I mm-hmm. could afford better tasting shit. But I was Did like, you treat yourself. I was like, nah, this, it's aristocrat vodka. It tastes like paint thinner and steel reserve malt liquor because why not? Why not? <laughs> you know? Um, well, for me, it was the Carlo Rossi. Ah, uh, yes. The giant. I, was, I always say like Uncle yes. Carlo. And um, <sighs> like, it's so funny because I was kind of a beer snob, but apparently I would drink screw top wine like, I don't know, like there's no you know it we're, doesn't we're, matter we're, we're cut from the same cloth my friend uh i oscillated between vodka steel reserve and then screw top wines i remember one time when i was living in chicago um i was going through my wine phase and i bought a bottle of wine that i thought was a screw top uh, and I got to the back of the dumpster where I was going to drink my, my wine and I opened it and it turned out to have a cork. I was so fucking pissed because I didn't have a, <laughs> I didn't prepared. have a, I didn't have a corkscrew or nothing like that. I literally, I think I, I found a screw, uh, and, 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 and then twisted it in there and then fucking yanked it like to get the bottle open. Yeah. Did that work? Of course it did. I mean, there was good job. There was pieces of cork I had to spit out. Yeah. Like nothing makes you feel better about like your decisions when you're like, I got to get to this fucking wine and there's going to be cork floating in it. But that, but that's, these are the decisions. It's uh, the decisions turn into how am I going to get it in me as fast as possible? That's right. And it don't matter what it is. It don't matter the brand. Um, and it's uh, until I, till I get the medicine in me, my brain's not going to stop whirring like a buzzsaw. Absolutely. Um, and that's how I made decisions pre-sobriety. And how I make decisions today is like, I, I, I still have to run some of those buzzsaw thoughts through other people. Like, you know, um, they talk, in, as far as higher powers go, uh, for me, the group of drunks has always been a sufficient higher power when I've either believed or didn't believe. I've always been able to rely on the group of drunks that I lean on. Um, Kelly, how do you make decisions in your life today? Um, that's, I make my, most of my decisions based on the goals that I've made for myself and my family and my businesses. Um, so most, I'm really fortunate. I'm an entrepreneur, so I get my, I'm in charge of my own schedule. Um, so I'm really able to pretty much make those decisions. Um, as far as, uh, you know, I do stay connected. I have a home group. I go to meetings every week. Um, my sponsor is uh, really struggling right now, so I haven't been as connected with her, but I did meet her last week. She's um, really helpful. And as far as that group of drunks, I, I'm with you on that because one one thing I've always felt is that when you go into that room, there is a strength there that you can't really disrupt, no matter how disrupt. Like, I'm not actually a very disruptive person, but if I chose to be, 
I wouldn't be able to overcome that groove. And that gives me a weird comfort. And so I think I rely on that strength a lot, even when I'm not actively using it. I do read a little bit of literature every day. I am a Buddhist, and so I meditate. But, um, you know, that's when I was at first in sobriety, I ran every decision by my sponsor. And I mean, very small potatoes types of decisions. And I think that's a normal trajectory that when we first get sober and we're first disciplining ourselves to the process, um, it, I'm not saying everyone has to do this. I'm saying it's normal to take everything, like to be overly worried. And, and that's how I was my first two years. Well, I didn't and, trust me. That, that, that's what it boiled down to. I, right. I, I didn't trust me as far as I could spit. Like, because uh, I, I knew, I knew what, what my decisions Got. I mean, right. they say that my my best thinking got me here. You know that whole <laughs> shit. But like I, I, I was the same. And eventually, after a couple of years, I started being able to like just kind of go mm-hmm. through, you know, uh, the motions of trust. And you have a conscience again. Like that's yeah. that voice that I was fucking trying to murder with Steel Reserve and Aristocrat Vodka uh, started to have more of a some more base in it. You know, like that conscious that tells you you're doing wrong or you're lying or don't steal. You know, I literally wanted that motherfucker quiet 24-7. But then you get yeah. a year, two years, and your conscious is like, hey, like, you shouldn't yeah. lie to this person or you shouldn't right. steal from this grocery store. <laughs> uh, did you feel like for a few years, a couple early years, I really was almost superstitious. I thought if I made one mistake that the lightning bolt was going to get my ass and I would like somehow drink. And that fear probably galvanized me to do the right kinds of stuff. But I don't feel that superstition anymore. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. I knew that if I fucking went back in the slightest to the way things were, I was going to go back out. Like, I knew that if I started lying again, stealing from people, like, I mean, I, at, to the point where I was like, I had roommates and I was like, can I please use your mustard? Yeah, right. Like, it was like, it was like that because it was like the, the in the previous life, I would use all that motherfucker's mustard and be like, yo. <laughs> who took the mustard? Yeah, who stole the mustard? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> my friend called that petty permissions. Mm-hmm. My friend in recovery, she says it's petty permissions. And that phrase has always stuck with me. Like, how many of those can we afford to give ourselves, really? Right? Yeah. I, and and in the beginning, very very little, um, where, like I mean, it it I just didn't I, I'm not good at being kind to myself. So especially in early sobriety, I was fucking punishing myself. I I was staying on the straight and narrow because he's like, you deserve this shit. Like I was on a DUI. I could have I could have paid like a minimum fee and got like a temporary license back. But I, I walked everywhere. I got a fucking bicycle. Like, I remember I was riding in the snow. I'd have to bring, like, a bag of extra clothes because I would not allow myself to get my license back or a car until I had completely paid everything off. So I spent two or three years riding my bicycle everywhere to work. And this is in, this is in Illinois where it fucking winter is winter, you know? And I would ride my bike down to the bus and I'd throw that shit on the front of the bus, and the bus would take me all the way west of town, and it would stop at the last stop, and then I would ride another mile up the road just to get to this little office job that I had. And I did that because I was like, I don't... I was afraid that if I got my license back too quickly, that I would go back and do the yeah. shit. Like, I wanted to solidify in my brain that's like... 
And now, I mean, I'm a model driver. I, I, I mean, I speed a little bit, but like, you'll never catch me not using a turn signal. Like, I just, I cherish the fact. My first license back after that DUI, I've got a smile from ear to ear, and like, it's, it just really meant a lot to me. That, I, but I put myself, and that just. That speaks about how, like, I'm not good at being kind to me, but in the beginning, like, I had to really drive home the fact that, like, you're not going back to that shit. Well, it's so unfair for someone to criticize how rigorous we can be in early sobriety, and in this case to yourself, or because we do, we are trying to re-pattern our brains. My, my doctor said that. He said, you're retraining your brain, and I'm like... A little confused, like, was well, this spiritual or is this brain physical therapy? Um, but it doesn't truly matter because the actual things we have to do are about the same. Whether you, um, And I remember watching a guy who went through that trajectory. He lost the family, the house, all those things, lost the career. And he was living at the mission. And I watched him walk, walk, walk back and forth to the club. Then I then he got his first job at Taco Bell. Walk, walk. I watched him do what you're talking about. And um, I saw him in meetings and he was doing what he was supposed to. And of, like, you, you know how it goes. In a few years, he'd gotten a, a degree and he went into chemical uh, dependency and all those things. And today he has a job, a car, a new family. Um, I don't know how, how his amends went and all those things. But I did watch him with that commitment and he got off the street again and got the, got the stuff back. And you can tell by looking at him that he's still clean and sober. Yeah. And I, and I don't hold that against anybody. This is just like, I tell my story. I don't think everybody has to do that to themselves. Uh, I I did. I did. Cause Uh, I knew if I got my license back, I would have been on the road doing comedy and sorted places you that's know, right. yeah. and, and yeah. that just, that's what worked for me. And it, it helped me learn a lot more about myself by, by putting myself to, through this step-by-step bu- rebuilding process and making a solid foundation, uh, to which we're, pr- we're pretty hard on ourselves. I haven't met someone who came in and who really did get clean and sober, who wasn't hard on themselves at first. I haven't, met, you know, sometimes they have a little bluster, but if you get to know them, they're, we're pretty hard on ourselves yeah. when we first come in. What do you what would you say is the most surprising thing you've learned about yourself thus far? I have learned I am capable of a great amount of self-discipline. I would not have told you that in 2011. <laughs> um I have learned that. So that I still surprises me. I don't think of myself as a disciplined person, but the record shows that I am. So So do you keep what a schedule like uh, elaborate a little oh bit? Oh my gosh. So so I mean um I got and stayed sober then a couple years later i quit smoking and that that stuck and a few years later i went vegan and that stuck these things don't necessarily take discipline in a sense because there are things we want for ourselves but in another sense once i commit to something because my heart's in it i am capable of following through and it just becomes part of my life and that that's just not the person that my parents, my my mother once said to me, she never thought I'd be a good mother. I mean, like, that's pretty rough, right? But it's like, I'm a very good parent. You know, we've, we've raised our children. We've done a very good job. I've kept my first marriage through all of this. So I'm a lot stronger and more disciplined than who I was told I was. So um, the important thing is if you've got that streak, that self-discipline streak, you got to also remember to have fun because otherwise you just take everything and you sort of gamify it yep. and 
Yeah. And some people make uh, work their entire personalities. That's absolutely. That's, uh, I, I, I know this might. Or my, CrossFit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, uh, the people who are typically the angriest are the people that self-identify as work as their personality. You know, and I, I've been. It's funny because I've been, I've been fighting with people on TikTok because of course, uh, and um, it's fun. It's uh, I, I'm 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 coming at the uh, nobody wants to work anymore people. Oh, okay, uh, right. That's my favorite because it's such an easy it's an easy platform. Um, or nobody wants to work anymore. They're not hardworking like me. It's like. You know, work is something you do. It's not who you right. are. Like my father worked himself to death. Like he right. he was a worker in the rail yard. He provided. He was a he was a great person. Like he was an alcoholic among other things. But like he worked until he was fifty nine years old, and he caught stage four cancer, and he died. You know, he had no time to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, he enjoyed life while he was here. Like that 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 don't get it twisted. But like he just had this whole I can't stop working mentality. And and I have to be careful because like I I have workaholism in my in in my body yeah. in my brain where I won't sit still I won't take a break or I, I'll hammer on something until it's done you know and that's that's part of me that I work on you know and it, and it involves being honest with myself you know so it's like how do I take you know who my father raised me to be get honest with the parts about it that maybe don't serve me if I want to, you know, live a long, healthy life. And then what do I do about those things? And, and self-honesty it, it has only been derived by, by staying sober for me. Uh, what about yeah. you? How honest are you with yourself and those around you? Um, I have a great network of people and I'm kind of careful who I disclose what to, um, and uh, my partner, my husband, is obviously my number one person I talk to when I'm when I'm really struggling. Um, you know, he is, he, I he is he respects my strength quite a bit, and I think he's always surprised when I have a setback. <laughs> so, um, so I have to be for me. I have to really say like, I, this is a setback. I have to say it pretty explicitly because I think a lot of people experience me as, as pretty tough. Um, you know, when you talk about workaholism, that is true of me too. And that's not something I knew about myself before I got sober. Um, I think because while we're drinking, we're kind of not capable of getting up early and like, we're kind of not capable. Although some alcoholics are some alcoholics, they start drinking in the morning, they work an 18 hour shift, they go home. But I was more like your typical, like it, it took me off the course. I couldn't show up on time, stuff like that. So as far as honesty goes, um, I figure if you're telling, as long as you're disclosing to someone else who is a good mentor or a good sponsor, you know, don't just disclose to people who are just going to co-sign your bullshit. So as long as you found a few people that you trust and respect the way they live their life, and as long as you're talking stuff out with them, if you, if you pray and meditate or journal, all to the better. If you go to therapy, that's great. And of course, yeah, I go to, I go to meetings. Meetings are really helpful because, of course, I listen quite intensely, but I also share what's in my heart. I don't think ahead about what I'm going to share or anything like that. And sometimes, you know, you say something and later you're like, oh, I'm, I'm a real mess about that. And I had no idea. And that's really helpful. So I, I do think I need other human beings, to be honest. I don't know that I'd be capable of that without them. Yeah. And I, I would agree with the uh, the first sentiment of like, I, I have 
um, the ability to discern who gets to know and who doesn't get to know certain things about me. Like, you know, that's at the end of the day, uh, I think my second sponsor told me, sometimes you got to be careful. Yeah. You know, you're around a bunch of sick people. Like, and, yeah. you know, I, I believe in honesty, open-mindedness and willingness, <clears throat> like, but also like I have tact. Like I don't, ne- yeah. I don't need to dump the parts of myself that are vulnerable in into any single person who might not be capable of of receiving that yeah and I, it took me a few years several years of recovery to realize some people want your intimacy but they're not deserving of it yes. and and i don't mean sexual intimacy although that is certainly true you know i've been monogamous and in one relationship since i've been sober but I, I mean even like friendship even sponsors sometimes like there are people out there that are like that emotional vampire they want things they want that those disclosures and that's not a common thing but it's common enough we should be a little bit careful yeah I people are people are inherently good around the rooms but there's also bigger problems than alcohol and drugs mm-hmm. like I I'm a big advocate of mental health and uh not everybody in the rooms are taking care of anything but their alcoholism yeah that's right or their drug addiction and some people hide in the rooms with other problems you know they there's a lot of people with you know sex problems who you would think that now that they're clean and sober they would go okay it's time to work on this and and a shocking number of them don't no it's it's the uh it's the, the, the tornado story in one of the books. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Uh, geez, ain't great the wind stopped blowing. That's right. I, um, yeah. Yeah, I was in a meeting once, and I, I'm, I, this is just who I am. Like, I care a lot, but I'll, I'll jump down some old fuck's throat that wants to talk about, like, mental illness and, like, a flim flam. Like, I, I, we were talking depression in one meeting, and this old guy was just like, well, if you got depression, go to the puppy store and go play with some puppies. It's just like, you're going to kill someone. Yeah, You're going to kill someone, you know? Like, my second sponsor committed suicide about two, maybe almost three years ago now. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because he didn't go to the puppy store enough. It's He stopped taking his medication and then started drinking again, and he put a gun in his mouth. Even our oldest literature says that, you know, it talks about that. So we need, sometimes we need outside help. We need, you know, we need to take that. Just like you'd go to a doctor for a broken leg. You wouldn't show up in the rooms and pray the, pray the problem hey, away. Hey, Steve, the plumber, <laughs> tell me, tell me how I can fix this bipolar, you know? Right, like, exactly. It, yeah. we, at most meetings read uh, the, in the literature, it's like many of them have grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the yeah. capacity to to be honest that's right and it's like the 12 steps 90 meetings in 90 days is not going to cure my depression it's going to fit me with the honesty and the openness and the willingness to go be honest with my doctors or seek help or ask someone who has experience in what i'm going through how do you stay sober through a surgery how do you stay sober through bipolar you know Uh, and that's and that's other than that that's you know that's that's all i know is how 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 to work this this program or any program is, is, is being completely honest with myself and knowing that like, again, drugs and alcohol are, are not my problem. I'm my problem, you know, or like when you hear people say like, Oh, I don't take anything that affects me from the neck up. It's like, go fuck yourself straight up. Go fuck yourself. Like there's, there's a, and there's people out there that need to hear different things. 
But in, in my experience, I've watched people make attempts without drink or drug in them. Yeah, because yeah. I know I've seen that too. Because they think that that's all that's all that they have. That that's that's yeah. You know, it's 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 anxiety inducing in the way that like I stick around to kind of carry the message that was given to me in honest as I can be, so that the person that's coming in doesn't have to hear this flim flam shit from a lot of dry, dusty old timers that just haven't picked up a drink in thirty years. That's right. And, or, you know, and there's shit they haven't dealt with yet, or maybe there's things they've never had to deal with. They've got outmoded ideas. That's why we need, you know, we do need lots of different people in the rooms who, because you can save a life when you speak up and say, um, you know, refer to the literature. The literature talks about sometimes we need medicine. Sometimes we need outside help. Absolutely. How do you experience fear and anxiety today? Anxiety is a really tough one for me. I had trouble sleeping for several years after I got sober, uh, years. So if there's anyone out there who thinks, if there's anyone out there who does want to sleep without having to be dependent on medicine, I can tell you I had that fear as well. Um, I've At this point now, I get into bed and I fall asleep. It's, it's really, I still am so grateful for that. Um, and anxiety during the day isn't too bad for me, um, although I'm not a very relaxed person. And fear is even harder to talk about because I feel like fear can operate on me without me knowing it. Um, once, once something makes me realize it's fear, like, like at a meeting or something you say or something I read or something one of my kids says, once I realize it's fear, Usually I can figure out what the fear is coming from pretty quick. It's like, oh, I'm afraid people are gonna, don't like me. I'm afraid uh, something's really wrong with my health. You know, it's, it's always these like caveman level, like it's not complicated. But the problem is for me, sometimes I'll operate and, and I won't really know that I'm in a fearful place. Yeah, it, uh, it's, it drives a lot of, you know, like it drives a lot <laughs> yeah. of shit and it's, Usually not the fear like my life is in danger. It's it's like I'm I'm not gonna get this. I'm not gonna be able to pay my bills, or I'm gonna end mm-hmm. up homeless, or I'm gonna be alone forever. And it's like all these da 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 da, and it's a lot, especially left unchecked. And if I'm not checking in with people, if I'm not doing the deal, like if I'm not, like you said, read a little bit, meditate, you know, a little prayer, a little check in with sponsorship, things like that. It's it that's when those fears like they they latch on instead of just being a floating like you know oh yeah yeah and then it just floats on by you know it's kind of like with meditation like if you're if you're practicing mindfulness you're gonna have thoughts and instead of you know beating yourself up for having the thoughts you just you you acknowledge them and you let them float on by you know yeah i recently had a medical i had a couple surgeries at the end of the summer and i developed some complications and um my my father died of colorectal cancer like 11 years ago and i had i suddenly had all this fear that i had like if you would have asked me if i had that fear for myself i would have said no but when it when it looked like a symptom that he'd had it was as if i lost my mind i just was like i it's like i went through his illness and death again and i thought that was quote resolves right and so I do think fears can come out of n- not necessarily nowhere, of course, but like they can really surprise us. Like we, we, 
you think like you think your marriage is strong until something threatens it and then you're like oh i have fear it just wasn't being tapped and so i've learned to be really humble about that and to not act like i'm fearless it's more that a lot of things aren't going wrong and so my fear is dormant yeah <laughs> right yeah and, and that leads to the next questions like what what defects of character have you worked on or surrendered to the most <laughs> Um, my biggest one is probably not giving my, um, enough time and affection to my family that if I have to be honest, that it's really easy for me to think they know I love them, that I'm here every day. They see how hard I work. I say nice things to them, but the truth is people, most people need more than that. They, they need to be physically touched. They need to be told uh, emotion. Like I'm very non-demonstrative. My father was too. Like uh, We don't say touchy-feely stuff. Um, so my biggest character defect has probably been learning to be more demonstrative. And, um, but you know, um, and, and I, that, that really bit me on the ass with my marriage about 10 years ago. So I take that one pretty serious these days. Yeah. I, it's, we're all a product of how we were raised, you know, and it's like until it, until it gets checked, you're like, oh shit, like not everybody is like this, like I, right. you know, and that's I mean for me, it's like the the selfishness and self centeredness of alcoholism without the drinker or drug. It's just like, well, I do this a certain way, so I assume everybody does things a certain mm -hmm. way, or this is what I need, so I assume that's what everybody needs, and everybody that's needs right. different things. Uh, which is a hard thing. And, you know, as far as defects of character goes, uh, most of the bad ones have been dormant for a while. But like you said, it, it's when something is threatened, a lot yeah. of those old defects will crop up. You know, like when I'm going through heartbreak or grief or things like that, those defects that I thought I had arrested, they start creeping back up again because I, they're 20 plus years of of practice you know they're not just gonna you know be completely gone after 10 years of good living yeah i recently this year i realized that when people do a no show or a cancel last minute on me which happens i'm i'm a busy person i have a lot of appointments I experienced that as a re personal rejection and that's in, like to use the term that's insane. It has like just because someone doesn't show up doesn't mean they're rejecting me. It means it could mean it could mean that but it really could mean a lot of other things. And um I really realized that's a huge liability to take things personal. I, I don't say, I don't lash out. I don't act like a dick. Because I don't like making amends. Uh, but, but. <laughs> right, right, that too. But it's like, but it hurts. And I'm like, yep. okay, if I really want to dismantle this, I need to get it to where it doesn't hurt when that happens. Yep. Because that's not fair to them. Like, they're like, shit, I was just, I just overbooked. It has nothing to do with you, Kelly. So that's one that sort of surprised me to discover this last year yeah. that how how sensitive i am to stuff that's not personal it's usually not personal yeah yeah i i have my, one of my biggest defects that i learned in my first fourth step and everything else like that is unrealistic expectations and in regards to having people cancel on me or move times and in my own world it's like i would never do that I would never do that. I would always keep my time. If I'm running, if I'm going to be less than five minutes early, I'm telling you I'm running late. Right. But again, not everybody like that's, that's just in Dave's insanity. Like that's Dave's standards of practice. 
and it, and and the sooner I get uh, get rid of the whole like, well, just because Dave does it this way means everybody should. That's that's where my problem lies. Right, and also if it's truly an asset of yours or mine to be on time and to keep to our word, if it's truly an asset, then shouldn't we want to practice that whether other people do or not? Why does it need to be reciprocal? Why do you need to practice it to bolster me up? It's like, I'm going to practice this. Because I need validation, Kelly. I need need you to... At all times. I need validation uh, of why I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right, right. I mean, and then it's, it's, it's hard too. So when those defects crop up, how quick am I to forgive? You know, and uh, like... It's hard. Forgiveness is a hard thing. And that's the next question. Uh, how do you experience forgiveness, Kelly? I, I, this is where my Buddhism and my science brain goes out the window because I truly think there has to be something spiritual or at least inexplicable about the capacity to forgive because there are things that I really struggle forgiving that are tiny. And then there are things that were done to me that were so bad, but somehow I forgave and so, you know, to err, what is it? To err is human, to forgive is divine. Like, I think there, you have to want to forgive. And it's, and if you don't want to yet, I think you should just be honest with yourself. If you're not ready, you should be honest. But I would just say be careful because resentment is truly toxic. It will eat you alive, then it will eat everyone else around you alive. But forgiveness, this is the hardest topic for me. I'm not very forgiving. Um, but I do try to look for that willingness to, to forgive. Yeah. I know I need to. And sometimes the best I can do is I have 50% mean it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, you know, throughout the past few years I mean, <coughs> of loss and everything else that I've had to deal with, like I've, I've mm. shied away from the spiritual aspect of the program. And, and sometimes I have to just be like, hey, thanks for helping me, whatever it is out there. Uh, I need to forgive this person. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to die. Yeah. And it's not like I'm going to go drink. I'm I'm going to rot. Yeah. It's it's poison. Me holding a resentment is, is just poison. And uh, it's I think it says in the literature somewhere it's like a, you know a justified anger is a dubious luxury of normal normal men. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it also talks about resentment's the number one offender. You know. Um, I always think of what was it Jim that put the whiskey in the milk? That was my my favorite story because at first I thought it was like it's like that's that lightning bolt gets you right in the ass you're going to drink, you know. But my first sponsor broke down all of the things that happened before that moment. And there's like six things that happened. And one of them was that resentment. He had that pissy attitude. I'm going to go do something else for the day cuz I didn't get what I wanted. And so I just think resentment we're all human. We all have them. Even if you don't have one today, to, tonight, someone flips you off in traffic or whatever, and now you got one. So I just say, you know, treat it with a lot of love and care and be willing to offer that up and talk to someone. Or if you believe in prayer, um, treat resentments carefully, I think. Yeah. I, they, it's got to come out. Some, yeah. some, it's got to come out one way or another. That's so so it's either coming out via the daily practice of like 10 step work or things like that. It's got, for me, it's got to come out with, I talk to my home row of people, not necessarily my home group, but my home, like my front row of people in my recovery that I talk to at least once a week. There's like maybe three to five people that I have a consistent phone relationship with you know and it's people with around the same time as me it's a couple cats with 45 years 
And uh, when I'm start when I'm feeling steamed, like I got to talk through it. Sometimes I just got to do a verbal. All right, this is yeah. who I'm resentful at. This is why. This is what it affects. And what if we are to believe that our, our troubles are of our own making? What, yeah, what, there's something in there that I need to either rectify or reorient or yeah, I, I usually take even a small resentment. It'll take me about three people to work through it. Yep. I, I, and now I don't mean I recite my resentment cause that's different where it's like, you know, John's a son of a bitch and let me tell you why it's more like, I do need to talk about it. I don't need judgment, but I do need to be heard. And the understanding is I am going to do something constructive about this, but I need to be heard and supported. And that's where it goes back to your family. Cause if, if you had a family, a lot of us had families who, if you, if you complained, they instantly said, why are you complaining? I'll give you something to complain. Like, like unfortunately, a lot of us I'll have give, a childhood I'll give tape. you something to cry about. That's right. Or at least my favorite was, you know, I remember when I had a miscarriage and, and people said, well, at least this and that. At least this didn't happen. At Ooh. least it wasn't like that. And I'm like, you know, can I have like a minute to just like have had uh, this terrible experience and to be sad about it? Or do I need to like pull up the bootstraps right that's yeah and uh i mean for me like i i've been and i tote this all the time but i've been reading uh and i should pick it back up but it's called the grief recovery handbook when i lost my father you know uh i just didn't know what to do with all the grief and it was the same thing mm -hmm. where oh it's people say dumb shit because they don't know yes, they do. how yeah you know it's like i you know i mean i i do a whole chunk on stage about the the dumbness behind grieving like meaning like when you're grieving people are like oh he's he's not in pain any you don't know that you yeah, know exactly. or like he's up in heaven you don't know that what if i don't believe that you know it's just a laundry list of shit that people just try to say uh to to dismiss the pain that you're feeling or it's like oh oh you're going through you're going through a breakup well at least it didn't happen 20 years down the road and you had kit yeah. like it's like it still fucking hurts now. Yeah. Like just cuz it just cuz it didn't like present itself as a fucking shit storm implosion doesn't mean it doesn't hurt and it doesn't mean like I got to work through resentments. I got to work through forgiving myself. Like that's I'm not good at forgiving me. Like when someone does something to me and I hurt because of it, I'm not good at forgiving myself for being in the position to be hurt. And that, exactly. that's something that, I'm doing a lot yeah. of fucking work on. I, after my first little surgery, I, ha I had some medical trauma in an ER. And um, I, I remember thinking, oh, I'm fucked now because the, I'll get over the pain, I'll heal. But I, I, now I have to get over the humiliation of being treated like this. And I knew I was like, that is going to set me back. And it did. Um, now that we're clean and sober, though, we can, we can get a little better, have a snack, go get EMDR, go get therapy, journal. We have all of these things available to us to process. But when you get hurt, unfortunately, it is a huge setback and, and you can't snap your fingers. It, it's not as easy as physical healing at all. And um, I'd take I'll take a fucking stab wound. Exactly. I'll take a stab wound over a fucking heart wound all day because I can see I can yeah. see blood. I can see wound. I can see, OK, this is going to take X, Y, Z amount of time to heal. Uh, uh, but with the heart pain uh, or resentment or things like that, it's just there is no there's no timeline. You know, there isn't. No. But, and there's often huge setbacks in a way that. You know, and, and like you just said, 
we can really judge ourselves for that, for being human and for like, how did I let myself be in this position? It's like, does it matter how you let yourself? Jesus, it happens, you know, like, yeah, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard. Uh, The next question is, what is a surprising amends or apology that you've either made or received? Uh, the one that comes to mind is so trivial, but I'd probably been sober like a year or two and I ran into a woman in the community and I've known her forever. She was an English teacher of mine. Um, so I've known her forever and we have a, um, totally cordial relationship and we're talking in a Walmart of all places. And there was just this moment in the conversation. And I said, Hey, I have, I have to tell you when I was 21, you hired me, uh, to, to house sit and I didn't do a very good job. And I just want to apologize for that. And she got teary-eyed, and she clasped my hands, and she said, oh, Kelly, I understand, blah, blah, blah. And it was one of those moments where if she'd asked me more questions, I would have been willing to tell her more about that story. Because when I say that we partied in that house, it was every night. It was so, I was so disrespectful with this. Um, you know, I didn't break any of her shit, but I was a disrespectful house guest, right? But, but she didn't ask for more, and she really – I got the impression she understood what I was saying. And that was one of those – early amends where I realized that it did take just a little courage and it takes a lot of openness to, to, to share more, but, but not to burden the person with oversharing, right? Except so, when to do so would injure them or others. Yeah. Just like kind of holding back and seeing if they say, you got to really wait and see what they say. If, what if, what if they say, tell me more? If what if they say, yeah, you son of a bitch, you know, you have to be willing to hear all of that. And to me, that was an early amends that really taught me that, Amends are tough, but they are really... My first sponsor said we're here to build character, not be a character. And it's like, they do build character, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not here just to save my, my ass. Yeah, Like, I, right. I'm here to, to hear. Yeah, I'm here to hear. And then, right. and then how, how that amends is going to go is based on what the other person gives me. Yeah, and it's pretty, I feel like amends, things happen kind of fast, even if not a words, not a lot of words happen. Um, the, so I just say, you know, um, make sure you have, if you're going to plan an amends, like have, talk to your sponsor first, um, have a snack, uh, stay real open and don't over talk, <laughs> like try not to, right? Yeah, yeah, just, just keep it even keel as you can and humble. And I mean, I, every amends that I make, especially like the big ones, like there's some, been some smaller ones over time where like I run into someone traveling that I was like, oh shit, they didn't make it to my four step, (laughs) but they should have been on there. Right. You know, I had to make an amends to a, a cat in Las Vegas who I used to make fun of in high school. I used to call him big horsey like that. He was a, he was a big guy. Uh, and, uh, you know, we used to. Like, I mean, we all ripped on each other, but like, I felt like I, I kind of gave this kid, you know, and I was a little fat right. kid too, but it's like, you know, you're just trying not to be the one that's getting picked on the most. And, uh, I made a, I was doing shows in Las Vegas and he reaches out and he's like, Hey, you're in Vegas. I'm in Vegas. I'm like, fuck. So like he shows up, he rolls up in like a nice Mercedes Benz SUV, smoking a blunt. The dude's got tons of money now and i'm like Ugh. so we're riding along i said hey mark like i gotta i gotta i i owe you an amends like when we were growing up in high school like i was very mean to you i used to call you a lot of names and i need you to know that i'm sorry and is there anything i can do to make that right and he takes a big old hit of this blunt and he looks around at the mercedes that he's driving and he looks at me he goes no we're good bro that's so funny you know <laughs> 
And I'm glad I did that. Uh, and unfortunately, like a year or two later, he passed, you know, yeah. um, of who knows, but that's, you never know. Like, and it's like, it's, 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 it's wherever you can, like when it crops up and you know it, cause it, like the conscious is there. You're like, Oh shit, I owe this person an amends. Sometimes you just got to do it. I'm so guilty of assuming a level of hurt. I assume they're really hurt or they're not hurt. And it's like, that's not my business to assume that. I, You and I know I did you wrong. It's not my business unless you want to tell me how it affected you, but it is my business to name it and to, you know, sometimes we say what we wish we would have done instead. Um, sometimes we say, is there anything I can do to help you with this process? You know, um, yeah, sensitivity and to take each one, and, and I love that story because you, before he did pass, at least that part got cleared out. And, and I appreciate that. Yeah, it's embarrassing. It's a, amends are embarrassing. Let's just say, they like, are. it just, they're not fun. Especially like the, the, the seemingly trivial ones. They're just, it's embarrassing to go to a grown ass person and yeah. be like, hey, I was a fucking child. I was a, I was, I was a human child, like child uh, as an adult. Uh, you know, and that's, I mean, that's the e- ego, ego shrinking humbleness that I, I think is a cornerstone to spiritual practice, whatever you believe in. Um, and that's the next question, Kelly, what is your spiritual practice look like on a day-to-day basis? So I am a Buddhist. I do read and practice. Um, I do meditate and I read a tiny bit of recovery literature every day. And um, I'm a big, I really like write down my list of what I want to get done. Um, I don't take a formal daily inventory like some people do. Um, and probably my worst uh, is is to really make that meditation time every day. That's hard to do, um, which there's really no excuse because, you know, even a minute of meditation is so much better than zero minutes, right? But, but that's me. Um, keep it pretty simple. That's great. So you mentioned you were a Buddhist. What is your relationship with a higher power uh, look like today? So I was raised agnostic, but my father, he, the only religion he, philosophy ever kind of gravitated towards was Buddhism. And I think that's probably why I ended up practicing. I was Buddhist before I got sober. And um, in my mind, the higher power is the Dharma. It's it, there's spiritual laws that exist, whether you like it or not, you know, like suffering follows an evil thought, like the, uh, cart follows the horses that draw it, you know? Um, in other words, if I'm an asshole to you, there, there's no getting out of the fact that now I'm going to suffer. I'm at some level, I'm going to know I was an asshole to you. So to me, the Dharma is very comforting because it's outside of you and me. It's not personalized. It's not trying to zap your ass. Um, so that's my higher power, and and when I'm feeling really low and I'm just not finding comfort, I usually do pick up the Dhammapada and read it for a bit. It helps me a great deal. That's great. Yeah, that's um, I am a big advocate of people investigating things that make them feel okay inside their chest parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's uh, so many different channels to get the spiritual news from, uh, and that doesn't mean you can't watch more than one. You know, it doesn't mean you can't change the channel, <laughs> but you just got to try to get the spiritual news from somewhere, you know, and I don't besmirch anybody who, who finds a path. I just, I always implore people because it's a defect of mine is to, to tell you the things I need to tell you to make you think I'm okay. 
uh, I'm not going to say anything in regards to my spirituality that I don't believe in. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a big fan of empty prayers. Uh, I know some people will say, fake it till you make it, or act as if, and that might work for some people. But uh, I can tell you anything in that book, and I'll regurgitate it to make you think I'm okay, when really I'm dying inside. Yeah. So as far as spirituality goes, I try to be as honest as humanly possible. Uh, the one prayer that I've been saying that a friend gave me recently is, uh, God, please don't, please help me not carry anger and hurt. Thank you for protecting me now rather than later. Although I don't know what your plan is for me, I trust you. And even though you know I'm lying, please help me anyway. And it's that that last part. It's just like that to me is uh, is as honest as I can get. Is even though you know I don't fucking hundred percent believe, help me anyways, please. Right. And that's what that looks like for me today. Well, I mean, when that describes our first few days in recovery, usually there's there's a moment where we don't believe it's possible for us, but we're still begging for help. Like, let's not get it twisted. Like, my life looks pretty good today, but when I came in, I was begging for help, and I I didn't for, I haven't forgotten that. And there are probably some people still alive on the planet that remember it too. Yeah, it's less and right. less, but there are, there are still a I handful know, right? of people that, right. that remember what I was like. Like you, They'll say it to me in a meeting. Some guy with 45 years ago, I remember when you came in. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like, I'm sorry you had to see that. But but um, it is sad when those old timers start passing, those people that were there when we came in. And but then you become the like, old timer. I know, the crusty old. Uh. I also say as far as spiritual channels go, I actually watch a lot of horror movies. I have a horror podcast. Like, And I, I know to some people it's like, how are you Buddhist? How are you vegan? You're watching horror movies. But I have to say, when, in terms of processing, oh my gosh, like such quality processing in these in these slashers uh, and that kind of thing. I uh, I'm a big 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 true crime murder doc oh, kind yeah. of person because yeah. it's the exact opposite of comedy. Like it is 100% the other end of the spectrum for me. And so like when I'm not doing stand up, like that's I'm horror movies, murder docs, things like that. That's I I'm into that <laughs> shit because it's a palate cleanser from everything yeah. else that I'm doing. You know. Yeah. Um, well we've reached the end you did it we did it solo it didn't anna valenzuela you were sorely missed but we did okay i think i think we did okay today um and the last question kelly is what would you tell someone just like you in the world listening right now uh just like me before i got sober doesn't matter okay i guess i would say you know um you gotta, you gotta do what you know is right, and you have to stop doing what you know is wrong, and and don't look around at your family or your friends for that guidance. Look, look inside your heart. And uh, I know that sounds corny, but um, but nobody's gonna do that work for you. Nobody's gonna rescue your ass. So if you're living in a way that doesn't work for you, you've got two people right here who would totally understand a disclosure like that. You've got millions of people in the rooms that would understand that, and um. Nobody will pick you up and carry you to that meeting, or even if they do, they're not going to carry you to the rest of them either. So um, I hope you pick yourself up and get yourself some help, I guess. Bam. That is all 12. Kelly, where can people find you and and the work that you're doing and your podcast? This is your time to promo all things Kelly. Oh, gosh. I guess the, the, when you really want to know what kind of bullshit I'm up to, I would go to my Instagram, which is just Kelly Hogaboom, all one word. Um, I would love people to know that I, so I'm a couture designer. I make custom clothing and I have a program where I make 
clothing and gift it to trans and gender expansive people so you can apply and get a piece from me and it is made at no cost to you. So I'm just one person, but that little program, I've started it a couple months ago, and I'm I'm making wonderful things for a population who definitely needs a little TLC. And, and what's that called? How can people... That's, that's also, you can find that through my Instagram, but I call it the Tiny Horror Hug Club. So you can look up the hashtag. You can look up Tiny Horror Hug Club, and you can see the kind of work that I do. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, you can find us uh, at 12 Pod. 1-2-Q-P-O-D on all platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, uh, TikTok. We're doing all the things. Uh, you can find me personally at Yates Comedy, Y-A-T-E-S Comedy on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook when I'm not getting kicked off of it. Uh, you can find me in all those places. And then if you want to support me directly, uh, you can buy my hot sauce, hahahotsauce.com. I make and sell a delicious brand of hot sauce as my merchandise after shows. So that is uh, that is the one thing about me that people seem to enjoy more than the comedy. <laughs> awesome. And how thanks a lot. And how we end this podcast every single time, uh, Kelly. If no one's told you this today, uh, love you, love you very much for doing this. Thank you. And if you're out there listening in the world, and to our co-host Anna Valenzuela for when she listens back to this, if you're listening, we love you. Thanks for listening, everybody. Peace. Right on. Thank you.